Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I'm joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon. Hey, buddy. Hi, J.D. How you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you. I'm doing really, really great, and I'm so glad to be here with you. It is a snowy Friday morning uh, here in the Mile High City, uh, but it's probably like a very warm and warm in, in, in on the East Coast, is it not? Uh, yeah, it's basically spring here. Uh, oh. It's it's January 26th, and it's 22 degrees outside. So there you go. Sorry. Nobody knows. No, no, let me, hang on. No. Uh, 40, <laughs> double this is it. my favorite affectation of hers. Oh, sorry. I forgot I was in America, the land of my birth. No, hang on. Oh, I, sorry. I, oh, you don't know. Oh, gosh. I'm sorry. Oh, gosh. I turned on the foreign film, but I forgot to turn on the subtitles. I I, I forgot you would need It's not those. an affectation. I genuinely <laughs> – I check the weather every day in Celsius. That's how Why? I – You live in America. Do you want I, your daughter to be that kid at school? 71, by the way. But do you – like, you don't want your daughter going to school and saying Celsius temperatures, right? You know she's going to get her kicked for that. I don't think so. I Yes, 100%. Unless you send her to Sidwell Friends or some other frou-frou diplomat school, your daughter goes to school and says Celsius, tempe- Celsius temperatures, and she is hosed, my friend. You can't <laughs> you let I, that happen. You and I you have look, responsibility. I went, to a, I went to a very traditional English public school. So well, I like by, to which think- Which you mean I, private school. Yes. Um, I, I, I like public to think- Public school, by the way, is the English phrase for what we would call a private school. Which is, you know, completely counterintuitive. But go ahead. Please. It is counterintuitive, I grant you. But my point is, I I think I have about um, as deep and pervasive an experience of how cruel children can be to each other in an academic setting. And never has anyone suggested that whether you say Celsius or Fahrenheit when giving temperatures is the thing that's going to get you. You can't targeted. stick out like that, really. Can you imagine showing up to your very wonderful English public private school and then? Saying, "Oh, it's seventy-five out." Don't you think they would have? Don't you think they would have kicked your? No, no, no. Then you. Uh, I mean, underestimate. They would have. They would have and did kick my several times, but for other things, not for temperature. Oh boy, you are underestimating the expectation of sort of conformity among children, which is something I want to talk about. Um, your underestimation of the expectation of conformity, perhaps. Um, but uh, but please. Please, and I think every reader would, every listener would agree with this. Please teach Mary the normal temperatures. I, I, I don't feel the need to teach her anything. When I was a kid growing up in Chicago, <laughs> we, we pro, the, pro, the procreation and education of children, my friend. This is what marriage is for. What is the end of marriage? The procreation and education I, no, of marriage. I mean and then they threw on this, and the good of spouse is fine. But you have a need to teach her the things. No, I, I meant within the subject of weights and measures. <laughs> When I was growing up in Chicago, where it was often cold and people tended to speak in Fahrenheit, there was hanging outside the window in the living room a thermometer, which I would consult on a daily basis in the winter because you wanted to see if it was going to snow or whatever. And it was at Celsius on one side and Fahrenheit on the other. And does she have that thermometer? Uh, no, no. Um, we we live in we live in the digital world now. So yeah, you know, I so check the weather on my phone. I know, but you should put the thermometer for her. With the Fahrenheit bigger, could gosh, could you imagine if the kids are like, uh, "Hey, come play football with us," and she's like, "Oh yeah, gosh, ten meters to a first down." You don't want that to happen to her. I think the argument's going to happen over the use of the word "football" first, rather than 
<laughs> yards. Fair and enough. on that, Fair I will. Enough. You don't want to put her in that. Come play football with us. And she starts kicking around a soccer ball. Bend it like Beckham. Welcome to Wrexham. You can't, you can't put her in that position. I, I think you're out of touch with the kids now. That'll just make her cool. No, maybe. Maybe in D.C. But here in America. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It is uh, – with that out of the way, um, it is time for us to talk about um, something that I think is interesting – an interest, interesting point of departure for some conversation. Um, Ed, you attended this week at the United States Capitol uh, a mass celebrated in uh, what was once called the Extraordinary Form, um, which might be called according to the – what is sometimes called the traditional Latin mass or sometimes called the Tridentine mass. But I think most properly we could say you – attended a mass celebrated according to the liturgical books of 1962 um, that was celebrated in a kind of conference room of the United States Capitol. And the reason why the mass was held was um, because it was the one-year anniversary of a controversial memo from the FBI's Richmond Fieldhouse, which came out last January of 2023, January of 2023, which basically said that the FBI was monitoring sort of traditional Catholics or should be monitoring traditional Catholics, um, so to speak, because of the possibility of this sort of um, infiltration, as it were, of their communities by kind of white nationalists or the prospect that their communities were um, covers for sort of white nationalist terrorist organizations. Is that is that right? That's broadly right. The, the memo recommended source cultivation in so-called traditional Catholic parishes and um, it also noted what it called the increasing convergence and overlap of white nationalist political movements in the United States, as well as um, the, what it claimed to be the, the sort of drift of traditional Catholics, um, all of which is, I, I think, not borne out by the facts, um, generally speaking. But uh, it was a controversial memo, and it upset uh, inter alia, the bishops of, of Virginia, as you say, this was a memo. When it came out last year, the bishops of Virginia said that it was appalling and that Catholics should be angry about it. And, should, and, and I think it'd be fair to say they were, generally speaking. Yeah. Uh, some Catholics were angry about it. I think many Catholics were not paying attention to it or presumed that it didn't pertain to them in any way. And um, it is also true that traditionalist Catholicism has been aligned, you know, sort of ecclesiopolitically and politically as a, has been at times taken up as a kind of symbol of um, either a set of political positions or within the church, a set of sort of ecclesiopolitical positions. And, you know, people, um, you, you put it well, I think, said that sometimes sort of going full trad is a sort of sign of repudiation of the church's hierarchy or of a f full endorsement of a... It certainly can be. And I mean, let's be clear, the liturgy is definitely a political issue within the church. Um, but I think when we're discussing the um, the Richmond memo, I, I think we're talking about something different um, because they, I mean, they, the Richmond memo is a fundamentally incoherent document, which I think is one of the reasons why it should be taken seriously is because that a branch of the of federal law enforcement generated something so internally incoherent and ridiculous um, should be a cause for alarm because it said things like, well, you have to distinguish um, traditionalist Catholics who prefer church teaching and liturgy from before the Vatican Council to from radical traditionalist Catholics who um, you know, prefer church teaching and liturgy from before Vatican Council II, and therefore they're white nationalists. And it's like, what? It, what? It, you know, there's, there is, it, the whole thing is mad. It's madness. Um, 
but again, to sort of say that you know, there's a there's a definitely a, a a wider political conversation and even conflict within the church around the liturgy. Um, to say that that then transfers into white nationalism in the United States, I think, is is more than a reach. Okay, so tell us what you experienced then. Tell us what you experienced at the at the mass. So first of all, I think we should say there are a few things to talk about with regard to the mass. One of them is this question of. I think, first of all, you know, the the mass, this mass at the Capitol has been criticized as being principally sort of liturgy for political demonstration's sake. Um, and that's one thing for us to talk about. And then another thing for us to talk about is kind of the canonical status of the mass, which I think is interesting. And then the third thing I'd like to talk about is sort of what kind of people you encountered there and what your overall overall impressions were and takeaways and things like that. I mean, having, the, having a traditional Latin mass in a conference room in the Capitol – I do think was an interesting choice as a way of marking the memo. I mean, sort of reflexively, I can see the I can see the logic of saying that you know, the the argument of the Richmond memo is basically if you like this kind of liturgy, you're ipso facto a potential terrorist, and so having that kind of liturgy in the U.S. Capitol to sort of demonstrate here we are and clearly we're not terrorists. I, there's there's a sort of baseline logic to that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. This isn't a comment on on extraordinary form liturgical preferences or ordinary form liturgical preferences or anything else. I I sometimes think it's a occasionally strange thing, I think, that in the church we sometimes say, well, what are we going to do? We have a thing that we want to, you know, commemorate or is it, we'll have a mass. It's mm-hmm. like, well, there are other ways the church can act and <laughs> gather and make a point and, you know, do things. I don't know that we always have to have a mass. Yeah. Um so, so it was. I mean, it was a choice, and I, I, you know, I asked people about this. Is well, why particularly a mass? Uh, and and there wasn't really a great answer to that, other than because that's what we do. And right. you know, I, I mean, fine, it's one of the things we do. It's one of the we things we the, do. We say the rosary. It's the most important we thing we do. But I mean, it doesn't. Yeah. You know, it doesn't mean it's necessarily right. the the thing you know, that we it do. It can sometimes all. feel a little bit like you know, your Italian going over to your Italian grandma's house, and she's like, "Well, I'm going to make food," and it's like, "Well, but okay, but we were going to talk about this." Like, yeah, yeah, but I'll make food. And it's like, yeah, okay, that's what grandma does. Well, you know, cool. Um, and and so I mean, there is that, and I think the event for if the purpose of the event was to mark and re-highlight the the dangerous thinking contained in the Richmond memo and the need for Catholics of any liturgical preference to remain aware of and vigilant about the sort of politicization of religious identity and the use of what the speaker of the house called to us viewpoint discrimination effectively um that you know catholics who who like certain parts of church teaching but not others are okay and catholics who like the reverse kinds of church teaching um are bad and suspect like that kind of viewpoint discrimination by law enforcement and making some kinds of catholic suspect classes ipso facto because they you know they adhere to particular parts of church teaching is bad and should be opposed and so i think that there were other ways that perhaps you could have done that more powerfully, I mean, I, I, I mean, just sticking my former political staffer's hat on for a minute. I mean, you could have, you could have had speakers like the Speaker of the House or the sponsoring members of Congress, who right. you know that you know the members of the Judiciary Committee or the the Judiciary's um, Select Committee on Weaponization of Government, who have been sort of leading the charge on um, on quizzing the FBI leadership over the Richmond Memo. You could have had you know a, a sort of presentation of the findings of the interim report of those committees that was issued last month. You could have invited 
people who have spoken out strongly um, about this, who have a profile within the church, like for example, Bishop Nesta or Bishop Burbage, the bishops of Virginia, who issued very strong public statements at the time this memo first surfaced. Um, and I think all of that could have generated far more um, impetus behind the the idea of keeping vigilant over over the FBI and this sort of thing than having a mass, which was by its nature sort of, you know, not secret, but not private, but not public and not you know, entirely visible either, you know, it, I don't know. It just, it just, it, it, it left a question for me over, you know, what is the, what's the, what's the actual hopeful outcome here? Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, one would hope that the, yeah, uh, one would hope that the intended purpose of a mass in the U S Capitol is to um, sanctify the place by the presence of God and the grace merited there in the mass. And, and these kinds of things that the pr- principal hope is a spiritual hope. And I think that if you asked anyone who was there, my guess is they would say, yes, that's true. Um, but um, but again, sort of if the principal purpose was to sort of demonstrate that Catholics are not terrorists or something like that, then I think it's a totally reasonable question uh, if the mass, you know, what, why the mass? So, th- so that was the first thing kind of um, uh, from that from from that point of view. Now, it was interesting to me that a number of congressional staffers, you said, attended the mass. Did any legislators attend the mass or do you know who was on there? I couldn't recognize immediately any members of Congress or senators or legislators. But, mm-hmm. you know, uh, again, I don't know that that's, you know, if the purpose is to sort of gather um, legislators together for a mass. I uh, that, that would be a different thing. But I mean, the the event was, as far as I could tell, and as far as I was told by by organizers of it, it wasn't that well publicized by intention, and yeah. that it was sort of you know quietly let it go out on the sort of Catholic staffer grapevine across Capitol Hill, yeah. close to the event that this is what was happening and when and where if you wanted to come, um, and obviously if you want legislators to come, presumably you would have to you know be much more forthcoming about the details much further in advance if you want to get in their diary. Yeah. Okay, so now let's talk about the sort of canonical status of the Mass, if you will. Um, it seems to me, we talked about this, you and I talked about this, and I. it seems to me manifestly clear that from a canonical perspective, and I actually don't think that the organizers would disagree with this, I think they would probably say that that is so, but it seems to me manifestly obvious that the Mass was, from a canonical perspective, um, Ill- illicit. So, um you know, Traditionis Custodes establishes that the diocesan bishop um, can establish uh, places for, so I'll just take a look here, the bishop of the diocese, um, this is from Traditionis Custodes, is to determine, is to designate one or more locations where the faithful adherents of groups of people who attend the extraordinary form may gather for the Eucharistic celebration, not in parochial churches and without the erection of new personal parishes, and to establish at those designated locations the days on which the Eucharistic celebrations are permitted using the Roman Missal promulgated by John St. John the Twenty Third in 1962. In other words, Traditionis Custodis is the bishop of the diocese is to um, designate places for this to happen and to establish the days on which it is to happen, um, which that's a pretty clear, I think, um, expectation with regard to the licit celebration of the Mass that it's to be celebrated in, in, in those times, according to a motu proprio from the Pope. Um, but the Archdiocese of Washington itself established particular law, liturgical norms for the Archdiocese of Washington, um, which said more specifically, again, these are liturgical, this is a liturgical law for the Archdiocese of Washington. As of September 21, 2022, 
All priests, deacons, and instituted ministers need to request and receive permission from the Archdiocese of Archbishop of Washington to celebrate the Eucharist using the Roman Missal of 1962, either privately or publicly in the territory of the Roman Catholic Archdiocese of Washington. There are, then there are some requirements for what the what those things should be. Um, later, it says that the places where the celebration can occur are three churches in the in in the archdiocese, and that permission is required to be granted for sacraments to be celebrated. All other sacraments are to be celebrated, apart from those given permission, are to be celebrated using the liturgical books promulgated by Paul VI and John Paul II. These rites may be celebrated in Latin. So, in other words, the Archdiocese of Washington's own liturgical law says for laicity, not validity, because a priest can validly celebrate the Mass, for laicity, you need to write to us and get permission before you offer this Mass, publicly or privately in the Archdiocese of Washington. I, I don't think there's any way around the fact that that didn't happen here. In fact, the organizers of the Mass, I think, were pretty clear about the fact that it didn't happen in this case. Um, going so far as to make, a, for example, a condition of, of attendance at the Mass, which we felt was relevant to attend because it was a mass in the U.S. Capitol, with the, which was newsworthy on several fronts, both ecclesially and um, politically, and, and ecclesially even for this reason, that the organizers were intentionally subversive of those uh, of those norms. The priest didn't write for permission, and therefore, as a condition of attendance, the priest couldn't be identified. We affirmed that he was a secular cleric, a, a secular priest um, who had faculties and children and all that, but... Um, Clearly, the mass did not meet these requirements. Uh, it was how it was phrased to me is we are um, we're setting out to ask forgiveness rather than permission. And right. I mean, I think that that speaks for itself. Yeah. If you know and, you need permission, you, know, you don't ask for it. Then right. that's that's definition of illicity. And we didn't publicize it because we didn't want. Um, we we didn't want the archbishop to shut it down. They said we right, didn't and it, we and, and also, I mean, I've seen the argument, and again, because of the text of the proper law that you've already read out. I don't know that this is a distinction that particularly bears, but I have seen people make much of, oh, but this was a private mass. It's like, well, it's, it's not actually a private mass. A, a private, private mass, mass you, is celebrated privately, right? Yeah, yeah, a private mass is celebrated private. This was not a private mass. It was in a public building. It was in a public space. Anyone who wanted to could attend if you and wanted to. And it was promoted. Saw, well, it was promoted discreetly and quietly. In amongst, but, but nevertheless, yeah. But And, and also people walking by could come in. It's not like right. the doors were not locked. This was not. Well, you know. I actually think that in a, pro I mean, this is a, just a canonical tangent, but I do think that when a priest celebrates a private mass, so let's say he celebrates a private mass in an oratory. What's an oratory? An oratory is an, is basically a church building that is not open to the public to which the, or I should say to which the public, to which the faithful do not generally have the right of access. Uh, so you're thinking of a private chapel. An oratory is a place for divine worship designated for the benefit of some community or group of the faithful um, and to which other members of the faithful can come with the consent of the competent superior. So, Right. Um, so again, it no, is, no public right of access. Right. It's, it's quasi, right. Um, but let's say that a priest celebrated a private mass in the oratory of his religious community. Any member of the religious community who has access to the oratory could wander into it. Or let's say that a college campus had an oratory as a sacred space. Any member of the co college community could wander into it. So I don't think a private mass has to be locked away. Um, and, you know, I, I think it is the case sometimes that people know, oh, Father always celebrates his private mass at 11. And, you know, some people kind of go attend it. I, and I think that's okay to still sort of meet the requirements of a private mass. And in a church, all the more, a church is a sacred space to which the faithful have the right of access. And so um, if Father celebrates a private, you know, mass privately in a church, people nevertheless have the right of access to the church. Um that was a tangent. I, I do think people can attend a private mass, but in this case, it wasn't a private mass 
anyway, right? I mean, it was very clearly a public mass, which was discreetly promoted and these other things, right? Right. I mean, you don't invite journalists, you know. <laughs> to a private mass. To, yeah, to that's, a strictly that's a great, private mass anyway. That, you don't invite journalists to a private mass is a, is a great criteria, right? Um, now, you were invited to observe. I was invited and to observe. You agreed to you agreed to the conditions which were required in order to observe because we thought that it was necessary to attend. And, I th- and that's sort of standard journalistic practice that one will agree to the conditions upon which one is invited to attend an event. Well, it's uh, not standard practice that one will agree to them. It's the standard practice that one will right. evaluate whether one is prepared one to will agree evaluate. to them. That's exactly right. That's yes. quite so. Quite so. Yes. But you, you agreed to do so. Um, but it's not a private mass. You're right about that. And I do think, you know, I think in one sense, it, it, it's clear that the mass was not canonically licit. Again, that doesn't touch upon its validity. And, you know, you wrote this morning that if the uh, Archbishop of Washington wanted to sanction the priest for celebrating an illicit mass, he would be well within his rights to do so. Uh, no, I didn't write that. I'm yeah, going to be canonically nitpicky here. I didn't okay, say the Archbishop do. of Washington because I don't know who the priest was and I don't know where he, from whence he came and I don't know to... But it happened in Washington. So if, It happened so in if Washington, priest... but I, I, I would be loath to assume the competence of a local ordinary to discipline clergy that are not his own if they are non-resident in the territory. What? What's he going to do? Let's, let's assume this is a priest of a diocese in California or Denver. For the sake mm-hmm. of argument, is it a delict to celebrate mass illicitly? Show me the delict. Uh, that's what I'm asking. If it's a delict, a canonical crime, then the place, the or the competent person to handle the canonical crime is the person who is uh, in whose territory the crime was committed. I would be surprised to learn that it was a specifically delineated delict. I don't remember that from my my book six, but we can have a look. Um, no, I suppose you're right. I mean, I suppose you're right. I'm not saying that it doesn't make one liable for sanction. It certainly does. I just don't see a, a sanction and a process of sanction being um, undertaken and um, applied necessarily by the ordinary of place. I think more likely the ordinary of place would become the aggrieved party and pursue the cleric in question through his own proper ordinary. That would that, I would expect that would be. Yeah, okay. All right, I can dig it. Um, so anyway, that's canonical hair splitting on my part. Um, but I was being I was non-specific in who 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 might apply sanctions if sanctions were applied, just because right. I, that would be my expectation is that it would be the proper um ordinary or superior of the of the cleric who would most likely be doing that. But your point is it, the and 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 I stand corrected. Um the, it would be reasonable for the cleric to expect to receive sanctions, and probably the cleric knew that he was putting himself in a in a Oh, it's not that he probably knew. He said and we included this in our report of of the mess that, you know, he got up and said, "Remind everyone no photography of the liturgy because I can't be identified here because of the times in which we live." You know, it's like he was very and, and look, a lot of people have said that act um that secrecy diminishes the integrity of what these guys were trying to do. They're trying to say on the one hand, we're law abiders and yet on the other hand, their whole thing was not law abiding. Well, this is this is something that I did try and tease out in in my newsletter this morning. Is that you know the the FBI they're there ostensibly to protest that the FBI think they're criminals, and it was not my experience of these people that you could that they were in any way criminally suspect or should be criminally suspect in the eyes of the federal government. Um, but if they have a if they have a sort of criminal bent, it's canonical, and that is that they were very content to knowingly, and I would say you know sort of. I don't want to say happily, but 
cheerfully. I think it would be fair to say cheerful. Was it was a demeanor I observed on the faces of many of the participants? Um, cheerfully organize and partake in an illicit liturgy. Um, there was a kind of knowing and winkingness to to the whole thing. A sort of cheeky. Yes, we're being naughty. Um, mm. And you know, I, I I I try to distinguish between. Those who participate, I don't want to say in 100% good faith, because again, there's a public announcement about all of this um, at the beginning of <laughs> of the mass, um, but those who really should know better. And mm-hmm. for example, a cleric who knowingly violates the law and defies the proper canonical law of the place in which a mass is being celebrated and either reminds or instructs or informs the assembly prior to celebrating mass that that is what he's doing, that sets an example. That teaches a lesson about respect for the church and her laws and her hierarchy. And I, I don't think it's a good one. I don't think it's a good lesson. But I mean, for me, the the thing, and this is what I was, uh, you know, I wrote this long rambling thing um, in the newsletter today. And uh, if anything, what I was trying to tease out is sort of say, these people were, you know, that that whole aspect of the canonical aseity of the thing and the knowing violation of of that um, that to one side, the people I met are good people. They struck me as good people. They're prayerful people who love the church. There was, you know, these are not crypto sede or benevacantists who were, you know, talking about, you know, the, the invalid Pope, Mr. Bergoglio or the bogus Ordo and all sacraments that aren't TLM or invalid or there was none of that. Um, so, you know, I, I, I don't know. I, I kind of, on the one hand, I feel like, um, Deliberately flouting the laws of the church is bad, but on the other hand, I mean, it is it is true in my estimation that the action being taken against people like this in the first place through traditions custodis is, I, I think, the wisdom of it is questionable. Yeah, and that's why obedience is a hard thing. I mean, it exactly. really is. No, absolutely. I'm not and suggesting that one justifies the other. Obedient. No, yeah, I'm, I don't even just mean it is hard to be obedient. I mean. I think that um, there is a contemporary tendency to regard sort of obedience for for most people to regard obedience selectively, even among people who want to who who really want to be faithful in the, to the church. I think of consequence of um, uh, the philosophical underpinnings of our modern American society and our modern Western society is to regard the notion of obedience with some degree of suspect and to have a kind of libertarian streak and even. Those of us who would say, well, I'm faithful to the church, all of us also do a kind of critical evaluation of which disciplinary laws I'll follow and which disciplinary laws I won't follow. And, um, you know, that was really exacerbated in COVID when there was, on the one hand, there were actions taken by ecclesiastical leaders that had to be reputed by the Holy See because they were wrong. There were, there was widespread. Well, there were attempts to promulgate sort of temporary emergency liturgical norms that were invalidating. Invalid, yeah, exactly. And then there were widespread measures that were ultimately, I think, you know, uh, proved unnecessary in certain ways or that, you know, there could have been much more efforts to continue to provide um, sacramental ministry. Individual priests, you know, by by which I mean priests, um, made heroic efforts to provide sacramental ministry to people. And I think they should only be lauded for that. But in many cases, I think that diocesan policy was driven not by sort of creative reflection on how best to take into account the relevant risk and at the same time um, provide the sacraments, but rather by 
something which often drives diocesan policy, namely how to minimize and mitigate liability, the, pos- the prospect of liability. And it is my longstanding belief that the probably most uh, underappreciated and important policymaker in the church at the time of COVID uh, was uh, was the insurance company, Catholic Mutual or other insurance companies which carry the liability insurance uh, for dioceses. And so on the one hand, in COVID, there were um, restrictions which seemed to many people unreasonable or unjust. Um, uh, you know, eventually my parish um, started, for example, started having mass outside um, and kind of spreading out and things like that. I loved that whole period of having mass outside. I thought it was really nice. I wish we would keep doing it. But, you know, at the beginning... Why do you hate sacred spaces, J.D.? <laughs> beginning before we could have mass outside it was just no mass and it's like well why too bad that we couldn't have been creative enough to have mass outside from the beginning you know what i mean and 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 when it was like no weddings um and you know no baptisms and stuff it's like okay but these restrictions exceed even the normal sort of day-to-day interactions that people are having during the pandemic and that's when you have to think okay there was some there was something here that was li- liability avoidance driven instead of merely precautionary. So on the one hand, you had that. And then on the other hand, you had people who say, well, I absolutely won't obey any of this. And I decide what I obey and I don't obey. And and I think COVID um, inflamed in a lot of people the kind of passion of of uh, of, uh, of resentful uh, libertarianism or libertarianistic uh, uh, individualism. But at the same time, there was a kind of justification for it. And, and here we have the same thing where there's a rule that many, many people in the church think – there's a po- new policy in the church that many, many people think – and the church is profoundly unjust, um, that people who celebrate the extraordinary form of the Mass have been persecuted, the many, because of the sins of the few and the dispositions and attitudes of the few. And at the same time, the, the policies do exist. And so meeting out obedience in that circumstance, look, Ed, I tend to um, fall on the side of obedience first. And I tend to think that the Catholic response is to fall on the side of obedience first, that we are sanctified by by being obedient to ecclesiastical um, leaders uh, and their judgment calls, even and perhaps especially when we uh, oppose them or when we think them unjust. And at the same time, we both know that ecclesiastical sort of the, the governance function of ecclesiastical leadership isn't infallible, and many people are you know can be hurt by ecclesiastical leadership decisions, and so all those things kind of come into to tension here. Yes. I, I mean, there is, you, you identify COVID as a sort of origin point for many of this. I, I think COVID was a crystallizing moment for, for a lot of this. Um, there have been, for as long as there has been canon law, the sort of barrack room canonist tendency to say, oh, well, the salvation of souls is the supreme law of the church. It says so right there. Therefore, I can do and whatever I do want. You want. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and this is not, uh, th- this sort of, you know, ridiculous nonsense because it's not what it means what it actually means is the the law of the church exists because the salvation because of the salvation of souls the right, law yeah. serves the salvation of souls the not, law serves the salvation and conformity to the law serves the salvation of souls that oh, law yeah, oh, exactly that you can't, us to holiness that, right. that, the, that the correct interpretation of salasani marum supreme lex is all law is oriented and should be drafted and interpreted towards the salvation of souls not the argument salvation of souls therefore trumps all law Mm-hmm. Um, that yeah, that's that it's a complete inversion of that that right. phrase, that canon's meaning. Um, but we, you've seen this from every corner of the church because you know the no no um, camp or faction or um, you know stream of thought or clique or whatever in the church has a monopoly or even a plurality on sort of you know self-aggrandizing bad actors. They they exist everywhere in every corner of the church, and they always have. Um, 
So we've always had that. And, you know, there are people who forever make the leap from the faithful, including the lay faithful, have in line with their status and expertise, the right and sometimes the obligation to manifest their opinions on matters sacred, uh, including their their criticism and when necessary, their you know, strong criticism of the wisdom or prudence or suitability of acts of ecclesiastical government. Um, that that doesn't translate into a sort of, you know, right I of opt-out. I don't think there's a right to civil disobedience in the church or that, that, that is where e- I was going e- with this. regard to ecclesiastical law or that right. um, civil Here's disobedience. Here's a compelling argument for why this law is unjust. Therefore, I'm absolved from following it. No, right. That's, that's precisely right. Yeah. I, I don't think that's right. And therefore, I think it's perfectly reasonable to say this priest ought not have... Um, Defied the mandate, so, you know. But now we're not doing reporting on it. We're doing I, sort of our you own. You said there's no this. right to I not have defied the ma- mandate on. Okay, but um, can we can we clarify just a little bit? Because you said there's no right to civil disobedience in canon law. Um, so, I generally speaking, I think I know what you're saying with that, and I agree with you. You don't have the right to become a scoff law because you think you have a legitimate grievance against merely ecclesiastical law. Totally agree with that. There's no there's no sort of you know opt out. Right in law, but let us take for example, as we as we saw several times in the last twenty five years in this country, um, an act of alienation whereby a diocesan bishop sought to merge or suppress a parish and sell and relegate the church building, and members affected engaged in what most people would regard as civil disobedience by staging sit-ins in the church building and things while they're canonical appeal was underway and they eventually won in some cases those canonical appeals while throughout which all the bishop and the chancery of some diocese were saying to them you can't do this you're on private property you you have to go this is you know what do you think you're doing you can't have a sit-in in a church church, a church has the right to a church is a building to which the faithful have the right of access so were they even being disobedient at all well yes let's say the bishop relegated the church to profane but not sordid use and the people made an appeal of that Yes. The, the appeal has suspensive effect of the decree, right? The appeal has suspensive effect of the decree. And therefore, the place remained a sacred space in the interim, right? Right. But suppose that in the act of suppressing the parish, which is canonically and legally distinct from the act of relegating the church building, uh, the parish being suppressed, the church building in question was designated a chapel or oratory. Is that what they appealed? The designation? The canonical appeals, as I understand it, I mean, look, we're t- we're speaking the, generally about yeah, the, de- but the devil's dozens in the and details. dozens of. I understand that, but the devil is actually in the details because no, I if agree what with they you. Appeal, I'm just saying you're asking. I just appealed, want to be clear. I'm not talking yeah, yeah. before I give answers to all of the hypotheticals yeah, you're posing. Yeah. I want to be clear. I'm giving hypothetical answers. I'm not saying, oh, yeah, yeah, well, yeah. in this place, because I think that if indeed you made an appeal, you availed yourself of the legal resources available to you, and those had suspensive effect uh, against the the relegation of a church to uh, uh, to become an oratory um, or a private chapel or whatever. And um, I th- I would think that the, the suspensive effect would mean that you would still have right of access to the place. Right. But you are defying an order of the hierarchy by insisting on your legal rights there. No. But okay. But that's not civil disobedience, right? Well, I, the, I, I agree. Civil and I started off by the... saying I agree with what you're saying when there's no right to civil disobedience. But you have to, as you just said, be very careful because the devil's in the detail here. What is civil disobedience? Yeah. So, for example, insisting bishop, strenuously on your legal rights. If a bishop issues an order to the faithful of X 
parish territory to vacate the sacred space formerly designated parish church of the now suppressed da 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 da. That is private property. It is not a church anymore. You are to get out. And you say, well, we are not we are not going to obey that instruction of the bishop because we deem it to be illegitimate because it is not in accord with the norm of law. Is that civil disobedience? Well, that's my point, Edward, is that obedience is complicated. <laughs> I understand that. I'm merely that's asking what you I to started out saying, right? I know, but then you made a general then you made a very general comment. And I wanted to highlight that my within that general comment, comment multitudes speak- were contained. Yeah, no, that's very, very true. Thank you. I did. I did say that it was uh complicated, and then I made a general comment. My disposition is to think that one should strive earnestly to obedience of ecclesiastical authority, especially on subjects on which one disagrees. With that said, um, I also think it is totally reasonable for one to insist upon one's ecclesiastical or natural rights and to try to do so in a way that is um, that will that will be effective and and not just sort of fall fall prey to the kind of positivism that says whatever the bishop thinks or whatever the pope thinks is sort of de facto law, regardless of whether or not it conforms to natural law or to divine revelation or, or, or a higher ecclesiastical law. Right. Which is why I say obedience is complicated. Obedience is complicated. There, you, you, you do have a right and sometimes a Christian obligation, though, to, to keep to the law in the face of bad lower law. There is such a thing as illegitimate law in the church. You can you yeah. can have laws that are mm-hmm. illegitimately issued that would, for example, require or seek to go against what the church also recognizes as the higher law of divine, be it either natural or divine positive law. You are not required to obey, nor should you strive to obey a law that directly In contradicts the judgment, natural law or the divine. Law. I'm just I want to bring it back full circle here. In your judgment, is the particular law of the Archdiocese of Washington, which there's a, another pedantic point I can make, but I'm not going to. In your judgment, is this particular law of the Archdiocese of Washington one of those cases? No. Neither mine. No. Because well, I would say, what is the natural law that it, 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 this the, the particular law would would be being claimed to subvert? I think traditionalist or Catholics would say or... we have a right to um, the form of the liturgy and that, that that's an acquired right or – a customary right or something which is not just sort of abrogated willy-nilly. They often sort of cite Benedict saying, you know, that that um, uh, the liturgy has sort of taken up a place of pride and preeminence in the life of the church. And they would say, you know, you can't just be positivistic about liturgical forms, that you're much more a steward of them than a sort of orig- originator uh, th- thereof. Well, so this is something that was said to me on Tuesday was that the the mass belongs right, to the whole church. It doesn't belong to the bishops, for example. And I mean, the, the answer to that, I think, is, well, yes and no. For sure, the mass belongs to the whole church. And in fact, we do have a right to the sacraments. We have a right to the mass, uh, you know, a qualified right, as all rights in the church are qualified. Um, you know, we do have a qualified right to the sacraments. We do have a qualified right to the mass. But it is proper to the hierarchy to govern it, to govern the exercise of that right, but also to govern the liturgy. Um, you know that that is that that's not just their right; it's their sacred duty, and and the two are inextricably linked. You can't just sort of set them in opposition and say, "Well, I don't like what the hierarchy is doing," and it rubs up against my right of access to the sacraments. Therefore, salusanim arm supreme lex. I win. You know that's that's not quite how those things interplay. Right. Yeah, that's right. 
there's another element of your um, of your assessment of this that I want to talk about. Um, if we can, can we shift gears just a little bit here? Sure. Okay. Edward, in your- The irony that it was me that ended up going to this, by the way, instead of you, is not lost on me. Why? Well, because we were talking last week about how you know you really wanted to go for the, to the March for Life because you like being out and about amongst people and talking to strangers and doing all of the things. <laughs> Lo and behold, you know, on perhaps one of the most charged and sensitive topics that involves the most, you know, careful engagement with with people and you know their their dispositions and their and their lives and everything. I'm the one who had to go. And well, it's interesting. It, it strikes me that this whole thing would have been covered better had you. I don't think I would have covered it better. I th- I do think I would have covered it differently. And I, I've been thinking about that. I'm sure you would have. <laughs> but I'm not saying that that's better or worse even. I just, I was thinking about how would I have covered it. And I do think I would have covered it differently. But one sort of thing that I've been trying to uh, do, uh, if, if, if you will, uh, is sort of um, entrust the role of providence in our work that perhaps it was providential that you were the one to cover this and uh, you covered it in your, in a unique way and you're in, in the way that you covered it. Um, and, uh, and, and I'm trying to see that if our work really is um, an expression of our baptismal call, as we often say it is that uh, it's providential that you were there, Ed, and, uh, and that you covered it. So I don't want you to think that I think I would have covered it better. I don't think I would have. <laughs> I, I, I stand by what I said. <laughs> Why do you, no, I, we were, we're going to explore this now. No, I don't want to. No, because clearly there's some kind of something going on inside of you. And it, <laughs> it sounds like you have some kind of insecurity about the way that you covered no, it. No, 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 You don't get no, me no, to please. try. No, 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 no. You don't get no, to try and do. No, 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 no. I'm not trying to do therapy. I'm just you, trying to talk to you as a brother. To do ther- you're trying to do feelings talk. I'm not <laughs> trying to do, I am trying to do feelings talk, but I hope you know that people can talk about their feelings outside the context of therapy. Like you've been married for nigh on. I don't, I've never talked about my feelings in the context of therapy, so I I couldn't possibly <laughs> have the idea that you can only talk about it there. Are you uh, feeling that you didn't cover it well? Are you I'm feeling not, insecure? No, I'm about not. How you I think it? You're, you're not going to tempt me into feelings talk on the main Come, show. I, not happening. I, I want. I think that people want it to because they well, want to know you. They can subscribe you. to the pillar and they can listen to the bonus episode. Then you can talk. Are about we going to talk about your feelings on the bonus episode? There is. A, I mean, there is as much chance we talk about that on the bonus episode <laughs> as there is we talk about anything else on the bonus episode. So sure, why not? <laughs> this is my death. Do you no, understand that? This no, is still isn't. my desk. No, it isn't. When we started the pillar, what title did you insist I assume? Editor-in-chief. Editor-in-chief, right? So yes. whose desk is this right now? Mine. You're co-owner of the desk. I, I, I would concur. No, I wanted Supreme Dictator for Life and Chairman of the Board. <laughs> we don't have a board. Exactly. <laughs> okay. You did a good job. I'm sure it's fine. But there is one element of your newsletter that I want to ask you about because um, – and, and it's created – you've created a little row this morning. Um, Have I? From, oh, yeah, imagine my surprise. Your people. Um, because you, Ed, said something – and I myself didn't understand it. I didn't really raise it. But even in our comments on, on your newsletter, you've raised this. But you said um, – uh, if the extraordinary form of the liturgy is about anything, it's about the aesthetics, right? The look, the sound, the smell, the totality of the people and places. That's what's supposed to make it seem so timeless, so magical to newbies like me. I was surprised that you wrote that. And and um, people both on the internet and in our comments are also expressing surprise that you wrote that. Because I, I think the argument of traditionalist Catholics is that the extraordinary form of the liturgy is not about aesthetics. It's about um, the missal itself and the fidelity of the missal to the continuity and continuity tradition with the with the prayers of the liturgy and that the prayers of the liturgy themselves are more expressive of the fundamental mysteries of the faith and uh, and that those are the things which are 
really important. And and by comparison, they would say that the extraordinary the ordinary form of the masses prayers and texts and rubrics are anemic and have dropped most of the sort of symbolic um, and actual ways in which we convey uh, to God our fealty to him. And of course, the mass is um, uh, meant for worship of God. So what is it, what are you doing? What did you mean about that? I, I th- oh, that no, you seems misunderstood that paragraph, that paragraph that entirely. That paragraph seems to have become the subject of a great deal of misunderstanding, I suspect. I I didn't realize that paragraph was I've I've seen some criticism already this morning of my newsletter. That paragraph wasn't particularly highlighted, but no, you you are and anyone else who's reacting that way you just did, um, you are then misreading the paragraph. That was oh, thank you. Because if the extraordinary form of liturgy is about anything, it's about the aesthetics, right? The look, the sound, the smell, the totality of people, place, and thing. That's what's supposed to make it seem so timeless, so magical to newbies like me. I'm saying that's what you expect when you go to your first TLM. That's your expectation. That's what the public perception of TLM liturgy is that you know I was that that whole first section of the thing I wrote was what was I expecting when I went to a traditional Latin mass what was I expecting at my first extraordinary form well this is what you expect right this is the stereotype this oh, is that'll the be high church and that's what makes it yeah a big this deal. is the I the the hypothetical TLM congregation the textbook image the you know this is what it's all supposed to be for newbies like me right that's what we're supposed to see that's supposed to be the first impression that mm-hmm. that's what that paragraph was. Was I said that this is? I see. And so you, this is what you, you go to a TLM expecting as a as a sort of before you walk in the door expectation. And in fact, I'm what I got more... going to a conference room in the U.S. Capitol was had none of that because you're in a conference room with a trestle table right. with you know no that was about confounded expectations and expectations that are fundamentally misplaced. I see. I see. Okay. I appreciate that. It might surprise not listeners, but readers to realize that of the two of us, I'm sort of much more TLM sympathetic than you are. Um, or at least at the very I'm least. I'm not unsympathetic. I'm, 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 I'm on au fait. You're unschooled. Yeah. I'm- that's fair. That's fair. That, that, uh, that, that you have very, almost no exposure in this universe. People would expect that you have exposure in this universe because, you, you know, because people think way. I'm a grumpy trad. <laughs> exactly. Because they would expect that the sort of meti- that that, for example, your opinions about baseball and that and honoring the t- sort of time honored traditions and customs of baseball would carry over into your opinions about Well, liturgy. I like natural law. That is true. I am a firm, right, exactly. I'm a firm adherent to natural law, I like to think. And so I think there are people who say that the, for them, the TLM expresses a more natural religion, if you will. That may be. However, just the paragraph you mentioned that the sound, the smell, the totality of people, place, and thing. That's what's supposed to make it all so timeless and magical to newbies like me. I was saying that is the same level of, well, no, that's just a that's just a public perception and ultimately misconception on the level of the pews all have fedoras on them and the children stand in descending order of height. Well, how did what what did you conclude about not about the people? What did you conclude about the liturgy? The liturgy was. I I, I will be honest. I found from the. From the the newbie spectator first experience of the extraordinary form, it was in many regards, not all, obviously not all, but it, the general impression one is left with is it's not that different, reverently done and shorn of all sort of the extraneous stuff that you get to do if you're in a parish church or another designated sacred space now. Um, and everything else, if you're doing, if you're stripping it down to the absolute bare minimum essentials, because you're doing it in a conference room with a meeting table, um, that it's rather like going to an ad orientum novus ordo in Latin. That, you know, the in terms of what you can actually hear, what you can see, it's a little bit less. You know, I said it, it felt 
slightly transgressive to be able to hear what the priest was saying at points. And, you know, but it was not, it didn't feel like an alien experience to me. And so you concluded from that, which I find very interesting. So if that's the case, if that's our experience, sort of why would people on both sides go to the mattress for this? Um, you know, why would the bishops be so hellbent on, on um, or why would the Holy Father and then the bishops who are in collaboration with him be so hellbent on sort of seeing this die a slow, bloody death, as Cardinal Gregory put it verbatim, yeah. um, and why would TLM people be so insistent on it? And I think what it seems to me that some of the row that I'm hearing is TLM people saying, oh, Ed, you're missing the fact that for us, the part that you can't experience, um, the, the part that you don't hear is the most important. We think that the Mass is about the worship of God, and we think that these texts, which admittedly we can't hear, and these prayers are themselves more fitting for the worship of God. Right. And but therefore, that's, we think that's really but, important. But no, but so fundamentally, what I the question I posed in the newsletter is, all of this has to boil down to one of two things. It's either a question of style or it's a question of substance. And by substance, I don't mean this word, this thing. I mean the actual substance of the sacrament, ad validitatum. Mm-hmm. That you have what you have, you know, that's well, how not, that's how we think of the see, no, but that's how we think of the sacraments, JD. There is the there is that which is for validity, that which cannot be touched, the irreducible core of the sacraments. And then we have the things around it that we build up for its best, most helpful, most soaringly lofty, most appropriate, most apt expression, right? Yeah, I I I I, I yes, but there's a huge line between it seems to me there's a huge area between um questions of validity and no questions at all. Questions of propriety are important questions. I, I didn't say there were no questions at all. Questions. I said that it boils down to a question of either the substance of the sacrament or something else. Or something else. But those other things, I think this is where people who are, T- the TLM people are maybe having objections to you as they're saying, but Ed, you seem to be dismissive of those something else's. I'm not dismissive of them. I'm just saying we have to, given where we are in the church right now, post-traditionis custodes, with Cardinal Gregory saying traditionalism will have to die a slow, bloody death, and we've got to deal with those priests, and like that's that's where the line is right now. And I'm saying, okay, but what what is the issue that brings you to that line and says I'm going to cross it? That says, fine, I will defy the hierarchy. I will I will flout the law. I will you know contradict the the you know unpleasant perhaps even unjust but nevertheless lawful instructions of my local ordinary the pope right the apostolic see over this oh and i'm saying over what if it's not over the validity of the sacrament then what your there are only three things that the church says this is what constitutes communion with the catholic church there's communion of sacraments there's communion of doctrine and there's communion of hierarchy to defy the instructions, legitimate, again, arguably unjust, misguided, whatever. I, I agree with all of that. But nevertheless, lawful instructions of the hierarchy, if you subvert that, you are, you are weakening the bond of communion and hierarchy and governance. So I'm saying if you don't, if you're doing that for anything other than a clear red light warning on one of the other two, communion of sacraments or communion of teaching, what are you doing this for? I think those people would say, and I'm sympathetic to this, I'm doing it because I want to worship God fittingly. And I don't, and I think that the fittingness of this way of mode of worshiping God is so much more than the fittingness of this other. I, again, I no argument. 
No argument. I have no problem with that as an argument. I have no problem with that as, as a motivating force. And I have no problem with people saying, we will never stop talking about this. We will never stop demanding that we be allowed to celebrate and to worship God in the most apt and fitting way. And that it is a monstrous logical incoherence to suggest that the mass of centuries is somehow no longer apt or bad or a countersign to the church. I agree with all of that. But I'd stop the line at, well, I'm not going to defy the hierarchy of the church over it. Do you mean I'm not going to defy the hierarchy of the church with regard to this illicit celebration of the mass or rather like, but I'm not going to sort of go underground and go to the break off guy, the arguably in schism guy or the in imperfect communion place. All of the above. The society of the pious, all of the above for you. Yeah. That, and the, for the, me, I, I can see how the question of the laicity of this particular mass it does not it probably doesn't seem to most people like they're breaking communion with the church. I didn't because say they're breaking communion with the church. I said you're weakening the the bond. That's what I said. I, again, I'm not saying you go to an illicit mass you're a schismatic. I'm not saying that. Only a lunatic who doesn't know what the word schismatic would <laughs> would say that. <laughs> I want to be absolutely clear. Anyone who says you go to an illicit mass in the TLM you are a schismatic. Anyone who says that is either a very 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 silly person who you should not take seriously or just a bad faith actor, possibly they're both. I'm not saying that. I'm saying it weakens the bond. When a priest gets up in front of an assembly and says, "I'm about to break the law now yeah, and I'm going yeah. to do it in the celebration of the Holy Eucharist." That's that's a sign against the hierarchy in the celebration of the mass, and I don't think that that's that, that's not an internally coherent position. And I don't these think. guys are saying, in the same way that some people continue to occupy their parish church, we're going to continue to occupy this liturgy. I, I, again, and you were the defender, right? Of I the, am. Uh, and of the I, I, again, I'm people. not saying you can't. Do, when I said, "What is?" Hang on, I want since I'm. I'm not asking you. I'm not trying to put you on the hot seat here. By the way, you're not trying to put me on the hot seat, seat? but you know, you're you're flagging what people are questioning. So if I said, "So what's the big deal?" Many fine me- people are saying it. Many fine people. Um, so what's the big deal? I don't mean that rhetorically. It's a serious question. If it's a matter of reverence and style, it seems an odd thing to strain the bonds of Christian obedience and communion for preferred prohibited liturgical form when you could otherwise achieve the same ends. Surely there must be a question of substance, the very substance of the sacraments that makes it all worth it. That's not me saying no such argument exists or has ever been made. I'm saying we have to, if that's what's at issue here, then that's where the debate needs to be located. I see. And these guys are saying yes. So what you're saying, Ed, is Let's have a more serious conversation about the Roman Missal. I'm saying, no, I'm not even saying let's have a more serious conversation about the Roman Missal. I'm saying there needs to be clarity in what people are doing and why they feel justified in the motivation. Because I think you see a lot of half arguments about yeah, that's okay. in favor okay, of the tale that says it's not about, you know, it's not about um reverence and piety and say the red, say the black and do the red. And it's much more than that. It's much more serious than that. It's like, fine, you can say that, but that's half an argument. You, that, that's, that's because the intro. You've only to said it. what it isn't. Yeah. Right. You've only said what it isn't. And if you're saying, well, we're not saying, oh, the bogus ordo is invalid. And it was like, fine, good, glad, but you, you you need to have clear in your mind what's in between those two positions that you and are arguing for that say, justifies the subversion of the hierarchy. I and think the a lot of traps would say we've been saying since we've been saying for a long time. Uh, again, but this is not. I, I'm just telling you. I think a lot of traps would say we have been offering our view on why the one is inferior to the other as a as a mode of divine worship. Or I agree. You know, I, you agree again, that they've this, been saying that. Yeah. 
I, I agree that they've been saying that, but again, I, hard as it is for people to believe, my newsletter is not always addressed to each and every person individually and written for, <laughs> for them to personally to take every line to heart and say, this is an indictment <laughs> of you. That same question applies equally to Cardinal Gregory and to yeah, Cardinal Roach and, right. and, to, and to say, what is it exactly that is your problem here? If these people yeah. are not in any way suggesting a contrary doctrine – then what's the beef? What is what is what is it that makes you willing to go to the mattresses and want to invoke slow bloody deaths? What's your problem right. exactly yeah. that merits the response you're giving? Yeah. Is that is that the conversation you see happening in yeah. in the church or why they're on the church? Okay, so I don't think I'm asking an unreasonable question there. No, I don't think you are either. I just wanted to give you an opportunity to explicate what it is that you're asking. Well, I mean, you know, and I again I, I follow that on with the, you know, thing of, you know, so what's, what is it that you, you know, and I mean, again, maybe I, maybe I expect too much from people in the reading of my newsletters, JD, it may be that that's possible <laughs> because I immediately followed that. I'm when not I criticizing said, your thing. I liked your thing. I'm, I'm just, just saying, to I, sort of- I wrote, surely there must be a question of substance, the very substance of the sacraments to make all this worth it. Generally mm-hmm. addressed to the issue yeah. and then followed up yeah. with and maybe these people are secret crypto sativacontists harboring right, right, right. preconciliar fantasies which is obviously not true not true. i've just right. written Agreed. a thousand words saying they're not that yep so i'm saying what is it what, what's, what's the big deal here why is everyone yep. so head up about these people why why is this the yep, greatest totally menace good. to the communion of the church and the safety of the republic i think you i think you said that very concretely and clearly it's not all about you Whoever you are reading my newsletter. <laughs> I thought you were saying that to me. I was like, whoa, whoa, It's whoa. also not about you, JD. I don't, so, I don't I, even know. No, actually, that's not true. Often, often my newsletter is in fact all about you. <laughs> I should be clear about that. <laughs> listen, this is very important, um, Ed. Uh, I need to say happy birthday to a Pillar podcast listener and friend Ooh. named Jared. Happy birthday, Jared! You turned thirty-seven this week, and uh, that was a good thirty-seven. Was a good year for me, and I hope it's a good year for you. Uh, you got a great, you got a great Happy family, birthday, Jared. Jared. I'm I trying to be blessed. What did I do at age? Th- where was I? What was I doing at thirty-seven? You came to work for the pillar, or no? You came to work for. I'm so old now. I'm having trouble remembering all the years. So we hope that you that thirty-seven is the start of great things for you, Jared, and anyone else who is having a thirty-seventh birthday. If you're turning thirty-six, you're turning thirty-eight. Too bad. Happy 37th birthday, Jared. The Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and Ed and JD Production. Our executive producer is Kate Oliveira. I'm your host, JD Flynn, joined by my podcasting partner, Ed Orientum Condon. See what I did there? Because we're talking about liturgy. That was pretty torture. Yeah, we'll be back next week. 